yourself. Turn in that copy of God's Word as the children are being dismissed. Back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 this morning for the seventh and final time. That's pretty appropriate. As John loves the number seven, the number of completeness, though we have fallen far short of a complete treatment of John 14, even with seven sermons. Either way, we conclude today with John 14, verses 28 through 31, page 901 in the Bible. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. What is it that tends to trouble you? I read an article last week in the, the London Telegraph. The Telegraph one of Britain's big three papers. And, and I initially thought that the article was quite troubling. Then I was, I was reading, like, oh, okay, this isn't quite as troubling as I initially thought. And then as I kept reading, I realized that it was actually far more troubling than I initially thought. The title of the article in this big paper last week was Young Sacrifice Belief in God on Altar of Satanism. Young sacrifice belief in God on altar of Satanism. Sounds pretty troubling. And as Satan, the ruler of this world, makes an appearance in our text, it also sounds timely. But any confrontation with something called Satanism should sound pretty troubling. Plus, the big giant lead picture at the top of the article is a man named Chaplain Leopold. He is the head of the Global Order of Satan UK. He's wearing a dark robe. He's got this super creepy horned mask on. He's holding this big, thick, old leather book with a pentagram on it. It's troubling. But then the article opens with Leopold describing who they are and what they do. He says, with our rituals, well, there's never any murder. That's good. There's never any murder. There's never any sacrifice. There's never any blood rites to Satan. We don't cast magic spells. We don't worship the devil. Oh, okay. That's a little less troubling then. The article goes on to confirm that contrary to the stereotypes, most Satanists don't actually worship Satan. Instead, the religion's fascination with Satan is more metaphorical. All right, they don't, they don't worship the devil. That, I mean, that's good, right? That's, that's a little bit less troubling. The article then continues to discuss the decline in traditional religions and the plummeting numbers of people who identify as and profess to be Christians. To which this head of the Satanists responds that young people today don't want to be identified with and constrained by some external religion, but rather want to identify as their own self-beliefs and self-realization, which is what Satanism offers. Okay. The article continues and then comments. Satanists generally do not believe in a higher power and instead revolve around a religion of the self, believing that it is up to individuals to define their own moral code and to develop themselves as their own gods. There it is. And that's where I started to realize that, oh, maybe this article was even more troubling than I thought. Of course, there is such a thing as the occult. We know there are evil spiritual forces. We should be aware of those things, stay away from those things. But here, I believe, is the far greater and more subtle danger. Satanism revolves around a religion of the self. So Satanism 
revolves around, Satanists themselves affirm that they are all about the very thing that our entire culture and world revolves around and is all about, the religion of the self. So maybe Satanism is far more prevalent than we thought. Universally prevalent, for if that is what Satanism ultimately is and is about, then we are, all of us, Satanists, apart from Christ. For it is the very nature of sin to substitute self into the place that only God belongs. And as you may know, the name Satan coming straight from the Hebrew means adversary. It means enemy, the ruler of the world in our passage, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, the one Paul says that all of us were following. And so it should be obvious that we can find no peace following the one who exists in opposition to and as adversary of the God of peace. And since his is the religion of the self, we can and will then find no peace in the pursuit and worship and focus on the self. And so in John 14, a chapter that is all about peace and comfort, that opens with let not your hearts be troubled, that includes Christ's great promise of peace, I want our focus for one more week to be on that peace. Many of us are plagued by a lack of of inner peace. Our world is clearly plagued by a lack of outer peace as we are once again this week confronted with conflict and violence that so characterizes everything. There are few things more desirable than true peace. So I want to consider it this morning with you uh, one last time uh, again in terms of trouble and comfort. In point number one, we need to establish the problem. It could be easy to miss something important that Christ says here. So I want to look at that in our first point. Number one, we're going to see focus on the self and find trouble. It's that simple. You focus on the self, you will ultimately find trouble. And then two points of solution. Uh, The second one, rejoice and believe in the Son and find comfort. That's point two. Point three, we will see love and obey the Father and find comfort. There's a simple but central biblical formula here. Self equals trouble. God equals comfort. So here's your big idea. Focus first not on self but the Lord and find peace as you enjoy him and trust him, love him and obey him. So focus first not on self but the Lord and that's where we will find our peace. Let me read the text for you. I want to read starting again in verse 25, just to get us into our passage, but we're going to focus on verses 28 through 31 this morning. So I will be reading for you John 14, 25 through 31, and I encourage you to pay attention. This is what God himself wants to say to you today. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 
And now I have told you before it takes place so that it, when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pause, let's pray, and then we will jump into God's word. Bow with me. Father Christ, in this passage, promises us the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who will teach us all things and bring to remembrance all that you have said to your disciples. Father, we believe in that Helper, your Holy Spirit. We ask now that he would help us. We ask that he would help both the preaching and teaching of your word and the receiving and responding uh, to that word. Father, help me as I both preach it and seek to respond uh, to it. Father, help all of us in here as we seek to focus not on ourselves, Father, not on what we have um, coming this week, not on what is distracting and discouraging us, but Father, fix our minds on Christ. Use this text to direct our attention a little bit more away from ourselves and a little bit more uh, to your glorious and good Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would find great comfort and peace and rest for our souls in him. Uh, Father, apart from you, in the next chapter, we will see that we can do nothing. So that includes this. So please help us now. Show us Christ. Help us to love him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what is it that tends to trouble you and why? Well, point number one, I want to argue that you focus on the self and you will find trouble. Where does that come from? Well, verse 28. But first, Jesus has just said again in 27, let not your hearts be troubled. But Jesus never just tells us what. He also tells us why and how. And we have been seeing that the big how of chapter 14 is a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, don't be troubled in verse 1 and verse 27 and sandwiched in the middle twice in verse 16 and 26. Jesus teaches them about the promised Holy Spirit to come, the helper. Remember, it's this fun word, the, the paraclete in the Greek, the one who comes alongside to help or aid or comfort. And when we are troubled, comfort is what we need. And I'm sticking with that word comfort here in points two and three to hopefully begin to redeem the word comfort and to, to consider again what this word really means and what it is that we really need. Remember that comfort originally is a compound of two Latin words, cum, meaning with, and fortis, meaning strength. So to comfort is to give strength and support. It's to powerfully and effectively help. So I'm encouraging you to think of comfort more as strengthening than consoling. And I'm harping on this because I do believe it's particularly important for our current cultural moment. It was all the way back in 1966. A few of you were alive. Uh, some of us were, were still a long ways off. But it was all the way back in 1966 that sociologist Philip uh, Reef published his landmark work titled The Triumph of the Therapeutic. It's a great title. The Triumph of the Therapeutic. That's over 50 years ago. And things have only gotten worse since. What does he mean by the therapeutic? Well, fundamentally, in that book, in the 60s, he defines the therapeutic as a culture centered on the self. A culture preoccupied with the priority of the individual self. 
And as that, that turn is made inward and selfward, the therapeutic is also then characterized by the central role that feelings and emotions are given. Self is the ultimate authority. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Personal happiness is the ultimate goal. That's the therapeutic. That, that's our current culture. Self, the ultimate authority. Feelings, the ultimate guide. Personal happiness, the ultimate goal. And thus any helper or counselor or therapist or friend, well, all that they're supposed to do is come alongside to help affirm you as your own authority and help you to actualize your true and real self by helping you to bring out and live out what you feel inside. This is the triumph of the therapeutic that so characterizes our current culture. Main thing, not to miss, it is characterized most by the priority of the self. Our culture is a culture increasingly centered on the self. Don't forget the opening illustration. Satanism, according to the Satanists, is a religion revolving around the self. And so, in that kind of culture and climate, I want to be careful in our understanding of comfort. When you hear comfort, don't think affirmed and encouraged in whatever it is that you're feeling or doing, no matter what. Don't think made comfortable. That's not comfort. Think about it like this. I mentioned last week that ease is one of my idols. I think that the good life is the easy life. The good life is the life of rest and relaxation and tim uh, entertainment. So the easy life, the good life for me is the comfortable life. And so when I want to be comforted, I want the result to be that I am comfortable as a response. Flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I mentioned this last week. I want to look at this in the text. Flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, page 964 in the Pew Bible. I mentioned this in passing. I was like, I need to go back to that and make sure I, what I said was correct. 2 Corinthians 1, page 964. This is one of the great comfort passages in the whole of Scripture. I use it all the time. I want to use it better. Look at verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. I love hearing all those turning pages. That's like comfort for my soul. Keep it up. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and here it is, the God of all comfort right so our passage john 14 the holy spirit the helper is the helper he's the paraclete now here in second corinthians 1 3 god is the god of all comfort the god of all paraclesis it's the same word all right so now look at verse 4 the god of all comfort who comforts us stop the word is parakaleo same word means to to call someone alongside for help or aid, or assistance. Go back to the verse. Who comforts us in all our affliction or trouble, so that we may be able to comfort, same word, those who are in any affliction or trouble, with the comfort, same word, with which we ourselves are comforted, same word, by God. And then Paul will go on to use that same word five more times in the next three verses. All sorts of paraclesis, all sorts of comfort. Same word in John 14. And so what is it? And I want to be comforted so that I can be comfortable. I desperately then need the reminder of verse 4. Look at it again. Why does God comfort us? It says that he comforts us 
so that we can comfort others in any affliction. Right? So my comfort is entirely self-focused. Here we see biblical comfort, other-focused. Okay, but still maybe God just comforts us as in consoles us. He says, there, there, it's okay, so that we can comfort others and say, oh, there, there, it's okay. What does comfort mean? How does God comfort? Look down at verse 8. So all these comforts. Here's what God does, verse 8. Paul again. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction or trouble we experienced in Asia. So we're in Turkey there, Asia Minor. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So there's despair, despair of life. This is true trouble. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. How does he comfort them? Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will Deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And there it is. Verse 3, the God of all comfort comforts us in our affliction. Verse 8, here's Paul's affliction. Verse 10, God delivers him. He helped them. He strengthened them. He delivers. That's comfort. God does something for his people in their trouble, about their trouble. He either delivers them from the trouble, as he does for Paul in this instance, or in other cases, he strengthens them to face the trouble that he is going to allow and leave them in. The point is, is that God's comfort is God's strengthening presence to help and encourage his troubled people in whatever way they need. That's comfort. Not consoling primarily, it is including that, but strengthening, helping, aiding, assisting. So, that was long. Back to our text. Let's see if this is helpful. Go back to John 14, 28. Because I think this is important. 14, 28. Here's the question. How does Christ, who is the God of all comfort, he's the paraclete. Remember, the Holy Spirit's another paraclete. That makes Christ the paraclete. So how does he, the perfect person, comfort and help his disciples in their trouble. Don't miss what Christ does here. This goes against everything that our therapeutic culture says about comfort today. This would be classified as miserable comfort. Let me read verse 28 again. He's just said, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, how? 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. That's why they're troubled. Jesus is about to be betrayed, he's about to die, to depart, and he's preparing them for that, and his teaching, he is teaching them uh, this, and it's troubling them. Why is it troubling them? Back to verse 28. If you loved me, whew, don't miss that. There's, there's rebuke and correction there. If you loved me, look back at verse 7, remember he did this back in verse 7? If you had known me, and this sounds similar, if you had loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. Ignore the last line of verse 28 for a second. We'll we'll, we'll tackle that in a moment. So what is Jesus saying? He's told them he's departing, and they are troubled. And again, we've said this repeatedly. Of course they're troubled. 
Right? The one whom they love is leaving. That's troubling. We can understand what they're feeling and why. We too would have been troubled. But there's more to it than that. And don't forget what Jesus has just taught them in 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, will come to teach them. That's the primary work and role of the Spirit. He is teacher. 16, he is the Spirit of truth. That's the primary way that he helps. He teaches the truth. But that's, that's kind of anticlimactic. It's kind of, well, so what? What's the big deal? We get tired of teaching these days. We have a hard time paying attention to teaching. People can hardly even stay awake for teaching anymore. And I'm not talking about anybody here necessarily. Um, but people can hardly stay awake for any teaching anymore. We struggle to see the importance of talking when what we think we really need in this world is doing. But... This is no mere teaching of man. This is not human wisdom and words, but wisdom and words taught by the Spirit. Spiritual truths, 1 Corinthians 2.13. These are the living and active words, the words that work, the words of life. Henry's application in Sunday school this morning from, from Matthew 17 was here's the Father speaking of the Son, his beloved, and he says, listen to him. Why would we listen to anyone else? Why would we ever give any credit to the wisdom of the world when we have wisdom incarnate? We have the God-man come to us, speaking to us, and God says, listen to my son. And here we have that son in John 14, promising the spirit who communicates to us effectively that which is true. And I think we all need to grow in our conviction that there's nothing more helpful and practical than the truth. That which corresponds with reality, the way things really are, the truth. Jesus has said back in 832, which will set you free. Doesn't that sound good? True, actual freedom? Jesus says, it's in the truth. And so back in 14.7, when Jesus says, if you had known me, again, we know, of course, that they knew him to a degree. But had they truly and fully known him, they would have known that he was the son of God. That to see him was to see the Father. That he was the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And so similarly here in verse 28, he says, If you had loved me. And now of course we know that they loved him to a degree. But had they truly and fully loved him, he says they would have rejoiced when he revealed to them that he was departing from them. Why? Because of the truth. Which is what? Well, first, it's that his departing is his dying, which is their living. Their entire eternity is dependent upon his departing from them to die for them. And if you've checked out on me, right, this is the time to check back in right here. Don't miss this, especially if you're visiting, uh, especially if you do not know uh, this Jesus Christ, your life, your entire eternity, according to this man, your very life and soul, the happiness, the fulfillment, the peace, the joy that you seek, are all and only found in this Jesus Christ. All of those things are all and utterly dependent upon you coming to him as the one way, the only Savior who dies for sins. If they really knew the truth, they would rejoice in the fact that Christ was going because his going is their very salvation. 
If you really knew the truth, you would rejoice in the fact that Christ is Lord and life, the Savior who submitted Himself to death in your place that you might live. Turn from sin and trust in Him. You will find only trouble in sin and self. And so He's saying to the disciples that they should be rejoicing in part because what He is about to do is the very heart of the good news on which we stake the whole of our lives. But that's actually not specifically what Christ says. Look at the verse again. He says, if they loved him, they would rejoice because the truth that he's going to the Father. Why? Why would they rejoice in that? Why, if they loved him, would they rejoice? Well, remember, what is love? It's not just some squishy, mushy feeling of affirmation or acceptance, or I just kind of like you a lot. Remember, no, love seeks the good of the loved, right? Love looks not only to its own interests, we're really good at that, but love looks to the interests of others. And what is the highest interest and good of all others? What's the Father? It's being with the Father. It's being in the presence of the Father. Jesus here is returning to his original inherent glory, Jesus is returning to the one whom he most loved. And so if they loved him, they would rejoice that he is getting to return to the one whom he most loved, for that is the highest good. Uh, think about it like what Paul says in Philippians 1.23. We just don't say this, or we don't really believe this anymore. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, my desire is to depart. And what he means there is die. My desire is to depart. For that is far better. Why? For he says, for, depart, to, for to depart is to be with Christ. He just said in 121 that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We don't actually believe that to die is gain. We don't actually live like that. And we don't actually believe that life is supposed to be all entirely about Christ. Right? We really need Paul's words there to consider them and to seek to live in light of them by God's grace. But this concept is why we both mourn death more than anyone else and less than anyone else. Maybe we just mourn it differently, I guess. But we mourn it more because we're the only ones who understand that this is not the way it was meant to be. Death is the great enemy. Death is the great intrusion into God's creation of life. But we also know that death has been defeated by Christ, transformed for us in Christ. And so now for us to depart is to be ushered immediately into the presence of God. Psalm 16, the place of full joy and pleasure forevermore. And that is far better. And so that's why we try to mourn for ourselves in the loss of our loved ones, right? We experience the loss of this one that we love, but we do that while also rejoicing for them because in Christ we love them and we understand that they have experienced infinite and eternal gain. And so it is here with Christ and even more. He says, if you truly loved me, if you were truly seeking my good, you would know that my departure is my gain because it is my return to the Father whom he loves. And so, what we're seeing here, this is our first point, what we're seeing here, is that their trouble, part of their trouble at least, their trouble was that they were focused first on themselves and on their immediate circumstances 
and what they think is going to result as a result of him leaving. They're focused on themselves and not on Christ. They're concerned first for themselves and not first for Christ. And so Jesus, because he loves them, he kindly corrects them and redirects them and teaches them and fixes their focus and shifts it from self to him. And listen, there's nothing more than any of us in this room need than a shift from self to him. Focus on self to focus on him. So much of our trouble results from our preoccupation with giving priority to the self, uh, from our first focusing only on ourself. Uh, and of course, listen, there are other sources of trouble. We get sick. We lose jobs, we get in accidents, uh, other people wrong us and harm us and cause us trouble. But again, how do we respond to all those external troubles? Where do we turn in the times of those troubles? Where is our focus in those troubles? Know that much of your grief and troubled heart is a function of your self-focus and love. And I know that that's the case because I know that that's the case for me. So much of my grief and troubled, uh, troubled heart is that inward focus first on self. What if I could just preach the gospel to the glory of God and then leave it in his hands um, and, and trust his sovereignty and his goodness? What if I could do that instead of going home and be like, wow, that person looked angry and I made this point wrong and maybe they think I'm kind of dumb and I don't know. Like, what, are, what, what if I wasn't so concerned with how I appeared and how I came across and was actually concerned first for God's glory and then did I effectively seek to minister God's word and God's good to the people? Are you aware of how aware you are of your self? A couple of us were reading a book uh, this week, and the chapter that we read made the claim that most people do not really know what is really wrong with them. Amen. I think that's a very insightful comment. Most people do not really know what is really wrong with them. So here's the problem with the world. It's got the problem wrong, and so all of its solutions are going to be wrong. You get the problem wrong, you're never going to get the solution right. Same thing for so many of us. We think that all of our problems are out there. All of our problems are circumstances. All of our problems are how we have been treated. All of our problems are external. When we forget that the thing that is wrong with the world and with us is our sin. And again, sin is fundamentally that inward turn, that turning in on ourselves, that focusing first on self, and thus focused not on the Lord from whom comes all good things. And this focusing on the Lord is then a forgetting of the Lord is ultimately a disbelieving in the Lord. The great Puritan Stephen Charnock says that all sin is founded in a secret atheism. Atheism is the spirit of every sin. And atheism is the religion of the self. Not God, but me. And you will find only trouble there. So, big first main application is we need to fix our focus. How? Well, point number two. We've established the problem. Let's seek to more quickly apply as we briefly consider the solution. Point number two, first point of solution is rejoice and believe in the Son and find comfort. And so basic idea, peace, comfort comes from him. It's found in him as we learn to f focus more on him. Look at verse 28 again. 
He says, because he's going to the Father, uh, Jesus says that they would have rejoiced if they loved him. That means that if they loved him, they would have rejoiced for him. And I think that also must then include rejoicing uh, in him as well. So why would rejoicing for Christ, why would learning to rejoice in Christ bring comfort? Well, again, real quick, let's do this again. What What is joy? The ladies are in Philippians 4 right now. They were considering the peace of God that surpasses all understanding last week from 4-7 as we're considering it in John 14-27. But that also means that they're just coming off of considering 4-4. And Paul's repeated rejoice, rejoinder, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Remember, that's what the whole book of Philippians is about. Joy. But what is it? What's the Greek word joy? Remember, it is kara, C-H-A-R-A, kara. And so in our passage, in our verse here, 28, Jesus says kairo. It's the same word. It's just the, just the verb form of the same word. Have joy. Uh, it just means to be glad. Right? Joy is gladness. But I find gladness in all sorts of things. I find gladness in my girls. I will find gladness early tomorrow morning with a book in my ears on a long run to the East River. I found gladness yesterday trying the new chocolate raspberry cheesecake uh, cookie. I found gladness in friends and table tennis yesterday, even though I also found frustration because I hate table tennis. Gladness is good, but we find gladness in all sorts of things. What happens when there's no friends or you're terrible at table tennis or there's no cookies, no running, no books, no family? Can we be glad when things are bad? Is gladness entirely dependent upon circumstances? Of course not. We know the answer is that it's not supposed to be. That's why you need Greek and grammar and grace. We just sang it. Grace and grace alone. I found great joy years ago and great help the first time I learned that this word for kera, joy, was based on the other Greek word charis, which the two Idens know quite well means grace. Charis means grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace that is greater than everything. Charis. And that then means that joy, biblically, kera, is built upon that same word. It's not just general gladness, but it is specifically gladness because of grace. Joy equals glad for grace. God has been eternally gracious and good to us in Christ, and therefore we are glad, we are content, we are convinced, as we're about to sing at the end, that all will be well All is well. I love that last line. All must be well. And that must be true if Christ is who he claims to be here and has done what he claims to do. All must be well. And so biblical joy is the settled and glad conviction that all is well, even sometimes when surrounding circumstances are far from well. Remember, joy is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And so you will find peace the more that you find joy in the Lord. You will find more joy in the Lord the more you focus on 
the Lord. It's that simple. We are easily able to miss wonderful and good things that are right in front of us simply by not paying attention to them. It is by God's grace, by God's grace, if I can focus more on my wife and focus more on my girls and pay close uh, attention to them and be intentional uh, with them, that actually increases my joy and affection for them. Like two weeks ago, everything's falling apart, and I had to take care of all five kids, and I don't know what's going to happen. I think part of this was just I was just delirious and terrified because Melissa's asleep, and I have all five kids. But there was just this moment where Vera just goes crawling off, little 10-month-old Vera, and her little bottom shakes back and forth as she crawls off really fast when you hear her hands. And it was just this moment of like, oh, what, what a gift. This little, this little thing, this little person is so wonderful. And I found great gladness and joy just from her crawling off simply by paying a little bit more uh, attention uh, to her. Pay closer attention to this Lord who is life. I focus on myself. I can miss wonderful wife, wonderful five kids, wonderful you guys, all the good things. I can be miserable, surrounded by wonderful things. Likewise, there can be all kinds of bad things around us. I focus on all the good things, and I can find contentment and rest and joy, even when things are falling apart. This is here. Point one, trouble as we focus on self, peace, comfort as we learn to focus on the Lord. And since he, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 1, is the God of all comfort, you will obviously find the more comfort, the more you look to him, love him, and live for him and not self. This is one of the great secrets of the Christian life. Peter walked us through this concerning discipleship from Matthew 16 two weeks ago. The whole time I was thinking Calvin, it's so important argument. Calvin argues that self-denial is the very sum of, of the Christian life. Well, what is it? It's, it's, it's self-denial. He says this in his institutes, we are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is best for self according to the flesh. We are not our own. In so far as we can, let us forget self and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him. And die for him. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life then strive toward him as our goal. Oh, how much is that man profited who, having been taught that he is not his own, has taken away dominion and rule from his own self, that he may yield it to God. For as consulting our self-interest is the pestilence, the, the, the plague, the poison, that most effectively leads to our destruction, the surest way to safety is neither to know nor to want anything on our own, but simply to follow the leading of the Lord. Let then our first step to be to abandon self, that we may apply all our strength to obedience to the Lord. That is such a rich and important passage. We are not our own. We are his. But don't forget how good he is. And don't forget how good it is then to be his. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And increasingly then, find your joy in him, this God who is all good, and you will find greater comfort than you can begin to imagine. Let's run for a second with that, that greater word. This, this is important. You'll find comfort in rejoicing in him. That's what we just discussed. You'll also find comfort in believing in him. Look at verse 29. On to 29. Jesus continues. And now I have told you, taught you, said these things to you, 
before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. He's teaching them that they may believe him and so be comforted in the face of the trouble to come. That you may believe. Remember, that, that's the purpose of the whole book. 2031. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there, there's comfort in faith. There is comfort in believing rightly and knowing who he is and understanding what he has done and what is to come. That's why he teaches. That's why he sends the Spirit as helper and teacher. Comfort is found in faith. Faith is belief and trust in God's truth. And so the more you believe in the Son, the more comfort and peace you will find in whatever trouble comes. But hold on. Believe what about this Son? We can't ignore that greater word. We can't ignore the end of verse 28. So look at it quickly. Look at what he had said there in 28 that we skipped over. He said there, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. What does that mean? This verse is a favorite of various groups. Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse. Unitarians, other such groups who, who desire to deny the deity of Christ. This is one of their, their key arguments. Look, it's pretty clear. John 14, 28, Jesus says it. The Father is greater than I. Case closed. How can we say that the Son of God is the same in substance and equal in power and glory when Jesus himself says that the Father is greater? Well, you know, it's, we're not going to get into it in detail. We don't get to ignore all the other statements in which Christ clearly affirms his deity and equality with the Father. This is one of the number one kind of markers and telltale signs of, of a cult or some sort of false religion. You'll take one truth and give it great emphasis to the exclusion of many other truths. Right? So that's what we see them doing here. They ignore 1030, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. 858, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, one, one, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What then does Jesus mean by greater here? Well, if I say, as I frequently do, that my wife is greater than I... Well, no one takes that to mean that she's more of a human person than I am. She's like more of a human being than I am. A better human being, yes, of course, uh, but not more of a human being. Everyone understands that when I say such a thing, I'm not referencing our ontology, just a fancy word that means our, our essence, our, our being. We are both equally persons. She's greater than I in competence, kindness, beauty, bravery, and many other things, but I at least equal her on the being a person front, right? I've, I've at least got that. And so the question here is, it's not, it's, it's, this is not what Jesus is talking about, essence, being. Well, what does greater mean in context? What does he mean? He's not talking about these things. Well, look at the text and note the four. I think the four there is really, really important. He says, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. So he connects the going, departing, returning to the Father for the reasoning of this greatness, this greaterness, whatever it is. And so I think that that indicates that Jesus is simply speaking of his current, present state in the flesh. The Father does not take on flesh. The Son takes on flesh. The Son does not sin the Father. The Father sins the Son. The Son is the one who humbles himself and comes to become one of us and to die 
for us. I believe quite simply that it's in that sense, at that moment, that he is speaking, the Father is greater than I, that Christ simply means that in the flesh, about to return and take up the glory with which he had with the Father before time began, that's all that he is referring to there. He's talking about in the work of salvation, in his incarnation and his death. The Son has submitted and subordinated himself to the Father, the Father who in that sense, in that moment, is greater than he. Oh, but he's about to return. That's why they should rejoice and be glad, because he's about to take up his, his, inherent, uh, his inherent original glory. And so context is king. You can't just rip a verse out of its context and make it say something else. God himself, Jesus Christ, becomes a servant to save his rebellious people. That's the point. He's saying, believe that. I'm telling you all of these things. Believe in me, who I am, what I'm about to do, as the Prince of Peace and the God of all comfort. The more you enjoy me, the more that you believe in me and trust me, the more comfort and peace you will find for your soul. And point number three, quickly and we're done. Love and obey the Father and find comfort. But first, look at verse 30. Well, we won't give it too much time. But look at verse 30. We began with Satan, and so we end. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. There's a whole lot of comfort in that claim of Christ. Uh, last week, I originally wanted to highlight the, the Trinitarian nature of the peace in verses 25 through 31, but I'm not good enough of a preacher to get it all into one sermon. But it's in this passage of peace that we have the revelation of the Holy Spirit as helper and teacher, the reminder of the joy and faith in the Son, and we're about to briefly consider the reassurance of the love for and obedience to the Father. So again, th this peace thing is a Trinitarian thing. We find comfort in the God of peace who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But... There is also an unholy trinity that is the source of all of our troubles. From Ephesians 2, 2 and 3, we read about the flesh, the world, and the devil. And if you substitute self or, or sin for flesh, we have a whole lot of what we've been considering this morning. Right, the original lie of Satan was you will be like God. What is he doing? His first move is to distract and to redirect and to seek to fix their focus, not here, but more to here. Not on to the Lord, but on to the self. He is God. Satan says, oh, but, but you could be like God. And as that inward turn uh, results, sin <laughs> happens. Satanism is the religion of the self. Satan's original lie was you, self will be like God. And so from the very beginning there in Genesis 3, as sin and death spread to all men, well, it's there that the world falls under uh, Satan's rule. And thus, that very world that we find ourselves in, that world that we entertain ourselves with, that world that we take in constantly uh, through news and media and social media and all these things, that very world now exists increasingly these days too to encourage and affirm us in that fixed focus on the self that God's word said is sin and death. But look at verse 30 again. Look at what Jesus says. 
the ruler of this world, that Satan, that, that, that religion of the self, that leader, that sin, uh, death, all those things, he, no claim on me. None. Listen, that's comfort. If you understand the gravity of sin, if you are aware of your own remaining sinfulness, remember, it doesn't just all go away. We still struggle with that lingering and dwelling sin. If you understand that, and are confronted with that uh, increasingly, then there are few things more comforting than the truth that the Satan that is all about the self, the sin, and death has no claim on Christ. For I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And thus Satan has no claim on me. 1 John 4, 4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Samuel Rutherford, 400 years ago, old lady, he says to her, don't, don't fear Satan, for you're greater than Satan. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, has no spots, has no sin, and Satan can have no power over a man with no sin. And in him, Satan can likewise have no power over us. Hebrews 2.14, Jesus took on flesh that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so all that is about to happen, notice what Jesus is saying. He says Satan's coming, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm obeying the Father here. Jesus is saying all that is about to happen in the betrayal, the trial, the mocking, the torturing, the murdering, it's going to happen according to God's will, under God's sovereignty, carried out willingly and freely by God's Son for the life of God's people and the defeat of God's enemy. Comfort, comfort, my people. That's the God of all comfort. See that? See what he does? Not, oh, they're there, you're okay, it's okay. No, no, you're not okay. I'm not okay. But look at what Christ has done about that. He comes and he delivers us. He delivers us from the trouble, Satan, sin, self, and death. And so whatever else trouble, whatever else it is, no matter how bad, it cannot compare to what he has already done and what we have already been saved from. And the result, the result of that great and gracious work that gives us life and spares us from death, it's love. It must be love for the Father who planned it all and guaranteed it all. And so look at verse 31, and we're done. There it is. Satan has no claim on me. You're not doing what I'm doing in accordance with Satan. 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This morning, Matthew 17, Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. This is, this is the one whom I love. John 14, the Father whom I love. So all I want you to see here is that Jesus Christ, just read about him. There's nothing better you can do. Just keep confronting yourself with the person of Christ. The only perfect person who has ever lived, loved the Father. Right? You, you want comfort, love what the perfect person loves. Focus on what the perfect person was focused upon. Set your mind on things that are above. Set your mind on God, your heavenly Father. The title, the word Father, is used 23 times in this one chapter, more than any other chapter in this book. This whole chapter, 31 verses, apart from two of them, 5 and 8, 
is the apostles. But every other verse is Jesus speaking, Jesus teaching. And what is he speaking and teaching about? The Father. 22 times. We saw at the beginning that Satanism revolves around the self. Here we see that Christ revolves around the Father. Sin is a focus first on the self. Here we see that Christ, the perfect person, is focused first on the Father. You want comfort in whatever trouble it is that you are facing? Stop focusing on the trouble. Stop focusing on yourself. Focus first on the Father. Love Him, for He is a good and gracious Father who loves His children and seeks their good. I hope that I'm at least a growingly somewhat good and gracious Father who loves His children and seeks their good, but I am also a wretched sinner. I am also prone to be plagued by that focus on self. Don't bother me, i got to read a book. right? Focus on myself. I can do that sometimes. And so sometimes I fail to perfectly seek their good. Not God. Not the perfect heavenly Father. What if you believed that he is actually out for your eternal ultimate good? And what if you believe that he actually always works every single thing in your life in the seeking of that ultimate and eternal good? Wouldn't you trust him? Wouldn't you love him? Wouldn't you obey him? Maybe, just maybe, he's wiser than us. Maybe, just maybe, he's better than us. Hasn't he demonstrated that so clearly in his word, so clearly at the cross, so clearly in the course of your life? Trust him. Obey him. Even when you don't understand. He does. And the cross cross perfectly proves that he is out for your good. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If he gave us that thing, the thing. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 28, all those things that work for good. So love the God who graciously gives you all things and who will work all things for your good. Then obey him, follow him, as Calvin said. You see how Christ there again links love and obedience? Obedience is the evidence of love. Oh, we see that you're good and wiser than me. Oh, I want to do uh, what you say. And reveal to me. I want to obey you. There's great comfort to be found in obedience to the God of all comfort, who has promised to conform me into the image of his perfect Son. Again, when I want comfort, what I generally mean is make me feel better. I too am susceptible to the spirit of the age that says that feelings are the ultimate God, that self is the ultimate God, and that happiness is the ultimate goal. But when God truly and biblically comforts me, he does not make me feel better, but he is in the process of making me better. He helps me and makes me holy. He makes me like his perfect son, the one of peace, the prince of peace. And to do that, he often uses trials and tribulations and troubles to to shape and mold me and deal with the sin that remains in me. Here's a trouble. My sin is exposed. Oh, that sin needs to be killed by uh, the Spirit. But if that's what he's doing, I can take great comfort in the fact that whatever comes, comes from his gracious fatherly hand. And that it comes for my good, to make me better, to make me like him to prepare me to be with him, uh, and for full and perfect communion with him, which is full and perfect joy and pleasure forever. That is comfort 
capable of peace in whatever trouble. Will you trust him? What is it really? Consider. I want you to consider this. What is it really that tends to trouble you? What gets you anxious and upset and hot and, hot and bothered? What troubles you? For me, it is increasingly my tendency to focus first on self. I must continue to learn that it is this very preoccupation and prioritization of the self. It is the cause of my trouble. And the true comfort is not found within, in, but only in him. It's found not in changed circumstances, but in Christ crucified and resurrected. The world and Satan revolve around the religion of self. It's a deadly lie. Run from it. Flee. Fix your mind on Christ. On the reality that revolves around God the Father, Son, and Spirit. On the religion that revolves around grace and grace alone. And find great comfort and freedom in forgetting self and looking to and living uh, for the Lord. Let me close you uh, with a word of prayer. Father, my words have been many. I pray that it would be your word that is what is fixed in our minds. I pray and ask that it would be your spirit that would work in accordance with that word to apply it to our hearts. Father, forgive us for how focused on ourselves we are. Forgive us for how prone we are to fundamentally live our entire lives revolving around self. Father, help us to see that for what it is. Father, help us to begin to truly understand what it means that we are not our own, but that we are yours, and that we are called to live for you, and that we get to live for you, and that that's actually the far better way to live. For you are the God of grace and joy and peace and pleasure. You are the God who seeks the good of his people. Father, help us to see how clear and good that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I simply ask now that you would fix our focus upon Jesus. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.